Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. Okay, in this episode, we talk to Peter Singer, a moral philosopher and professor of bioethics, who is widely known for his writings about animal ethics and global poverty. 45 years ago, he published Animal Liberation, which basically became the founding philosophical statement for the modern animal rights movement. And more recently, Singer was instrumental in establishing the Effective Altruism Movement, a global community focused on using evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible, and then taking action on that basis. But we begin on the topic of animals, and in particular the meaning of and case against speciesism, understood as a prejudice or attitude of bias in favour of the interests of members of one's own species and against those of members of other species. We also ask about historical attitudes towards non-human animals, and in particular, why does this concern for animal welfare seem so unprecedented in the history of ideas? After that, it's a bit more all over the place. We talk about causes of moral progress and how effective ethical arguments really are. Uh, We talk about what policymakers might be neglecting about the costs of COVID lockdowns, why Peter changed his mind about moral realism, and finally, the value of openly discussing controversial ideas. Okay, without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Peter Singer. I'm a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Apart from teaching at Princeton, I write uh, books and articles, uh, and my specialty is in ethics, particularly applied or practical ethics. Uh, I'm involved in uh, various issues, uh, which I guess the two most prominent are uh, effective altruism, specifically in relation to global poverty, and uh, the treatment of animals. And it is that second topic which we kind of want to get stuck in first, so about the treatment of animals. Um, you have written this hugely influential book called Animal Liberation, where you define this term called speciesism. Uh, can you explain to listeners what speciesism is and uh, what the thinking behind it is? Yes, certainly. Um, so the simplest way to grasp what speciesism is, is to think about racism, uh, perhaps sexism as well, but in some ways... Racism is a clearer parallel, uh, especially if we think about the really uh, brutal racism of the 18th century, which uh, justified Europeans in uh, capturing or, or buying uh, Africans as slaves and transporting them across the Atlantic to work on their plantations. Uh, a simple case in a way, well, not really simple, but anyway, uh, clearly a case where a dominant powerful group was using uh, uh, another group who they could overpower as tools, basically, as means for their ends, means for the ends of the dominant group, without um, uh, any real consideration of the interests of the group in their power. Now, uh, think of the relations of humans with non-human animals. Uh, Think, if you like, especially of those that we uh, breed and raise for food. And I think you have a fairly similar situation. Uh, You have one powerful species using members of another species who are sentient beings, who have interests in not suffering and their lives going better for them rather than worse. Um, And we humans 
uh, capture them, use them as tools, use them as a means to our ends to produce their uh, flesh or eggs or milk. And we do that with really no concern or very little concern for their interests. We're doing it basically for our interests. So I think in both cases, we have a, a prejudice or a bias, uh, which uh, also has a kind of ideology behind it that says that uh, the dominant group is the superior group uh, and that we use to legitimize or justify the exploitation of the uh, weaker group. So li listening to this and this this parallel to, to racism or, or sexism, as you said, I can imagine that some listeners will think, um, but these aren't really the same thing, right? Like when we look at humans, um, we would think that because of our intellect or because of our ability, uh, you know, to, to think consciously, we are fundamentally different to animals. And therefore you can't make this comparison as you could with, with racism or sexism. How do you object to this thinking? There are different ways to object to this thinking. One is to point out that if that, in fact, is the rationale, we don't apply it consistently because there are some human beings, members of our species, who also lack the intellect or the self-awareness or use of language, whatever it is that people say is the crucial aspect in which we differ from non-human animals. Uh, some humans, because of uh, intellectual disability, uh, are not capable of those things either. But we don't use them in the brutal ways that we use non-human animals. So it seems that we are still making an exception for members of our species, and that's why I think the charge of speciesism is legitimate. The, the second way of objecting to that really goes back to a remark made by Jeremy Bentham at the end of the 18th century when he asked with animals in mind and our treatment of animals in mind, um, and perhaps thinking about exactly the kind of defence that you referred to, um, the question is not uh, can they reason or can they talk, but can they suffer? And that does seem to me to be still a, a very pertinent moral insight that if what we're talking about is inflicting pain on them, then does it really matter whether they can reason or talk? Isn't pain bad because of the feeling that it generates because of the suffering. Um, and I would say that that's the case today still with the way we treat animals. So you've made a strong case for animal liberation in the context of human causes of animal exploitation, things like the meat industry. Um, but a lot of people have pointed out that the natural world is also more or less characterized by fear and other kinds of suffering. Um, is there a case for intervening to eliminate wild animal suffering as well? There's a sort of theoretical case for intervening to eliminate wild animal suffering. Um, you know, uh, I suppose it were true that I, I think the existence of suffering, uh, the suffering in, in nature in wild animals is, uh, something that is bad about, about the world, um, in my view, it's uh, evidence that the world was not created by an all-knowing, all-powerful and all-good being, because I don't think such a being would have created a world in which animals suffer in the way they do, uh, even in nature. Um, but should we intervene in it? Well, if we had ways of intervening in it, which were 
not going to make things get worse, not going to make things go wrong in other ways, uh, perhaps. Um, and many people would want to add if we had ways of intervening to reduce the suffering without diminishing some of the values that people find in nature in uh, the different species, the, the species of predators, obviously, um, and in the idea that nature can be something that exists independently of human interference, of human management. Many people find some value in the idea of natural processes apart from ourselves that have evolved over millions of years and they don't want to disturb them. Uh, I'm, I'm not myself completely convinced about that argument, but uh, it obviously is uh, a possible value that you would need to consider in deciding whether you were going to try to reduce wild animal suffering or not. So um, I want to flesh out a bit what kind of the consequences um, are if we now take animal suffering seriously. Yeah, flesh um, out think, is a good expression here. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that would be interesting to kind of discuss is what this then means. Because um, I think one thing that it could lead to is thinking that all lives are equal. That, um, you know, the, the life of a mosquito would be almost worth the same as the life of a human. Which, if I understand you rightly, is not what you are saying. Um, could you maybe um, explain... Uh, more um, of like the consequences, what that might then mean for how we approach animal testing or how we approach animal products? Yes, you, you do understand me correctly. Um, I don't think that the life of a mosquito is worth as much or to be protected um, in the way that the life of a normal human being or for that matter, uh, a normal pig or cow uh, is, is to be valued. Um, I think, uh, you know, well, firstly, as is suggested by the quote I gave you from Bentham, um, I think the, what is you know, really important about the way we treat animals is uh, that we don't inflict suffering on them uh, unnecessarily and indeed that we allow their lives to be as, as pleasant and suitable to their nature as possible. That's a different question from saying, um, is it wrong to end their lives in a painless way? Uh, and that's a more controversial question. And it, in fact, you know, in animal liberation, I put that question to one side in the first chapter. I, I think it's enough to talk about um, giving equal consideration to the interests of animals where their interests are similar to ours. And I think their interest in not feeling pain may be similar to ours. Their interest perhaps in enjoying their lives might be a little different. And certainly their interest in continuing their life is different from ours because uh, when I say ours, I'm now talking about normal human beings, normal capacities, uh, not infants. Um, we have the capacity to envisage our future, uh, to plan our life. Um, and in fact, I imagine that, that you and uh, most of our listeners too uh, have been doing things today and you know, for much of the past that are wouldn't make sense if you didn't anticipate that you have a future and uh, want that future to be in some way better because of the things you're doing today. Uh, but non-human animals, I think, generally are not like that. And there may be exceptions for chimpanzees or elephants, but most non-human animals, I don't think, think about the future in the you know beyond relatively short-term future. Um, and I don't think they go in for detailed planning and consideration. So in that sense, to 
take the life of a normal human with all of those plans is to wrong that human in a way that you can't wrong a being that is less future directed, that is less thinking of its life in a biographical sense. Um, so uh, that's why I don't think that there's equal value in all lives, irrespective of their cognitive abilities. Um, and that, that makes a difference, you know, as I say, between humans and pretty much any other animals. Uh, since you mentioned the mosquito, let me also say, you know, when you come to invertebrates like mosquitoes, it's uh, more difficult to establish whether they're capable of suffering at all. Uh, I think there are some exceptions. I think the behavior of uh, octopus does make it clear that they must be conscious beings, that they must be beings thinking, solving problems and so on. But mosquito, it's not so clear to me that it's not more like a complicated tiny robot um, that is somehow programmed by evolution to do things more instinctively without consciousness uh, being part of that. I think it's fair to say that there's an overwhelmingly strong case against inflicting these harms on you know sentient non-human animals on the vast scales we currently do through for instance factory farming and also for weighing the moral interests of non-human animals on a par with humans to the extent that they have them. Um, but I find it surprising that so many smart people, or apparently smart people, have just failed to reach anything like those conclusions, including basically every major moral philosopher from history, with very few exceptions. So what's going on here? Do you, do you have some story about why that is? Uh, if you're talking about historical philosophers of the past, um, I think that in a way our moral thinking has progressed um, over centuries and at a time when people were not even thinking that all humans have the same moral status, in other words, when, when racism was prevalent, uh, you wouldn't expect many philosophers to come to a view about uh, the moral status of animals. Um, no, some, some did touch upon it, um, sort of, David Hume has this remark about uh, that although we don't owe justice to animals, we owe them gentle usage. Uh, um, and uh, of course, Bentham, I've already quoted, and the utilitarians generally, all the, the, the great 19th century utilitarians, Bentham, Mill, and uh, Henry Sidgwick, uh, all were quite explicit about saying that animals can't, that animals suffering can't. Um, but there's not a lot of others, really. Schopenhauer made some positive remarks about animals. Uh, there's not a lot of others who think this. And, and I, I see that as partly, as I say, because of the, the state that moral thinking was, was in with regard to humans as well. And to think about animals was going a bit far. Um, I mean, even women, right? So, so Bentham, for example, has some unpublished writings in which he's quite explicit. He, he, the, the utilitarians were uh, arguing for reform of the voting franchise in for the 1832 Reform Act. Um, and Bentham was arguing for uh, universal male suffrage, which didn't happen for a long time later. But he actually has unpublished writings in which he says, of course, we should, you know, women should also have the vote. But basically, we can't say this because we'll be laughed at. So um, if, you know, if you're going to be laughed at for saying that women should have the vote, you know, how are you going to get off saying that we should give equal consideration to the interests of animals? It's not that easy. Um, when you come to contemporary philosophers who don't have that sort of uh, problem, uh, 
I, I, I attribute it to the power of, of, of habit and the sort of importance that people place on food and the cultural values that food have and has in terms of, you know, say, Americans sitting down to the Thanksgiving turkey and whatever the other national equivalents of that are, uh, and that people are sort of just a, a bit, you know, conservative about trying to say, nope, I'm not going to take part in that anymore and doesn't matter if it uh, disturbs my family uh, or if people think that somehow I've you know, gone a bit weird, um, I'm going to do it. And I think that's there's that kind of inertia, that kind of pushback um, against making a break with conventional diets. Uh, I guess the, the question now is um, why that culture or why that normalization has come about in the first place. And in your book, you talk a lot about how our view on animals and our treatment of animals in the West uh, has certainly come or been shaped by by Greek antiquity and uh, Judeo-Christian values as well. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, that? Yes, certainly. Uh, so I think that our thinking in the West has these two roots that you mentioned, uh, ancient Greece, where a lot of the philosophy comes from. And uh, it's perhaps a, a, a pity in terms of ancient Greece that it's was Aristotle who was the most influential philosopher in the Western tradition because when people like Thomas Aquinas were writing in medieval times, Aristotle was the only ancient philosopher who they knew. They didn't yet have writings of Plato. That came a couple of centuries later. And, you know, we still don't really have the writings of Pythagoras. It's Pythagoras was a vegetarian. There's plenty of uh, mention of Pythagoras being a vegetarian in the ancient literature. Uh, but we don't even really know quite why he was a vegetarian. Um, there are sort of neo-Pythagorean works, by which I mean just, you know, some hundreds of years later, um, that do show concern for animals as, as a ground for being a vegetarian, uh, something by Porphyry in particular on the abstinence from flesh. Uh, but, um, you know, maybe there was a belief in reincarnation as well as animals that he'd got from uh, some Eastern sources. We don't really know that. So Aristotle... Um, had this hierarchical view of the universe that the less rational exists to serve the more rational. And he used that, in fact, to justify the Greeks having slaves, that uh, the so-called barbarians were less rational humans than the Greeks, and that's why the Greeks could enslave them. Um, but he also used it as, you know, to show that animals are there as a as a means to our end they also exist to serve the uh, the more rational by providing food by providing their skins and furs and uh, bones and for tools and so on so that got taken into the western tradition by uh, particularly by aquinas um, who uh, also had these christian roots um, and the christian roots you know seem to reinforce that because you can find things in the gospels that um, suggest, uh, well, that, that Jesus didn't care for animals either. Right? For example, he, uh, in the case of the Gadarene swine, he uh, took the devils out of this person and made them go into the swine who ran down the hill and drowned themselves. Well, if you really cared about animals and you had the power to get rid of devils, why don't you just evaporate them or something like that? You know, Why do you drown a lot of pigs with them? Um, and then Paul actually... Um, uh, also is very explicit in reinterpreting the uh, ancient Hebrew law about not uh, working your oxen on the Sabbath. Um, and he says, uh, did God care for oxen? No, the law was made entirely for our sakes. 
So um, there was plenty of a, a basis there for early Christian thinkers to say, uh, you know, we don't have any duties to animals. And Aquinas was very explicit about that. Um, and that still hangs around, unfortunately. In fact, I just watched today um, a, uh, a, a documentary made by a woman called Carolyn Krauss who interviewed me. Uh, it's not available in public yet, but because I was interviewed, I got an early screening of it. And she travels around the United States uh, asking people about animals and you know why do they think it's okay to use animals. And she herself says she was really uh, astounded by how many people came back to saying something about, well, the Bible says that God gave us animals for our, for our own use, gave us dominion over them and so on. Of course, the United States is a more religious country than either the UK or Australia where I am now, but uh, that's undoubtedly uh, a significant influence on many people. What kind of counterfactual difference do you think the moral arguments will make for animal causes, like you know, getting people to buy fewer animal products? Um, so we fielded questions on the EA forum, and someone pointed out how people eventually stopped using whale oil to light their lamps and whatever else, uh, for entirely like prudential economic reasons, even though it turned out to be the morally best thing to do as well, right? Um, and we also spoke to Bruce Friedrich of the Good Food Institute recently, and he made a similar point um, that, you know, the moral arguments are just going to continue to be so much less effective than other drivers of change, like making plant-based and clean meat cheaper and healthier and so on. So maybe my question is, um, how much slower, if at all, do you think that transition from factory farming will be made without animal advocacy? Well, um, you know, I, I know what Bruce, Bruce Friedrich is doing. I know Bruce well. He's an old friend. Um, and I know, I know what, he, what he's doing. But a lot of the initial impetus for producing in vitro meat and plant-based meat you know some of the some of the companies that are now quite large um, companies like uh, like just which makes alternative to animal products were, were founded by people who were persuaded by animal advocacy that it would be better if we didn't have hundreds of millions of chickens sitting in cages to produce eggs uh, and therefore they've produced a plant-based mayonnaise for example so um you know, if you go back to the start, I think we would be far behind in the production of plant-based and also cellular-based alternatives to products from animals if we hadn't had the animal advocacy. Um, also, another factor here is that the animal advocacy, uh, to some extent, and this is not universal, but in some countries, including uh, the entire European Union, and I guess the UK, because it's still got the those laws that it had as well, um, do have some standards for the production of animal products, um, including, say, outlawing the kind of standard cages for hens that are still very widely used in the United States. Um, and that uh, serves to make the products a little more expensive, um, and that is going to help the alternatives compete with them. So I think that's another factor. Uh, but in terms of in terms of how many people you know directly switch because of animal advocacy, well, there's certainly there's certainly some. Um, but uh, Bruce is right to say, you know, we haven't got the majority, and we haven't got anywhere near the majority. And uh, there isn't a trajectory that says, oh, you know, wait ten years and then we'll have persuaded the majority through animal advocacy. Um, I wouldn't make any such claim. We're, we're certainly not 
moving ahead that fast. Mm -hmm. um, okay, this is a hopelessly uh, big question, but I want to ask you it, which is in general, uh, how do you think about the powerful moral argument to change behavior and to affect um, history and historical progress? And on the other hand, to what extent are ideas and moral arguments just kind of epiphenomena which hang on during or after the facts once the kind of economic conditions are laid, right? And then um, as a bonus, maybe could you mention um, your recent work with Eric Fitzgebel on, on roughly this question? Yeah, sure. Um, I think moral arguments have played an important role in, in history. Um, as I said, I think they do. They are playing a role in the animal movement. Um, but I think the uh, abolition of the slave trade, um, essentially the British um, slave trade abolition movement, was uh, essentially, you know, was was really essentially a victory achieved by a moral movement. Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, that the economic forces had suddenly made that an unprofitable trade. In fact, when the British government abolished um, not only the trade but also slavery in the Jamaican uh, in Jamaica and other West Indian colonies, um, they paid uh, quite what was then quite a substantial amount of compensation, which suggested that there was an economic cost to this, but they still did it. So I think that's that's a good example that a moral argument does change the world in, in important respects. And I think if you looked at it, you'd find other cases as well. Um, now, to switch from this very large scale and important <laughs> changes to something really quite small, um, uh, I did a study together, the study was led by Eric Schwitzgabel, who's a philosopher who's done some interesting empirical work about the impact of philosophy, um, and uh, Brad Coakland, who's a, another philosopher. Uh, and Eric, I should say, his, his work, uh, until we did this study, was essentially somewhat sceptical about the impact of, of uh, doing moral philosophy. One of the studies he did, for example, examined the behavior of moral philosophers, of professors of moral philosophy, and compared them with the behavior of uh, other professors who didn't do moral philosophy, um, and found that the moral philosophers were no more ethical in their behavior than, than the others. Um, although, you know, you, if ethical argument made a difference, you would think that they would be. Uh, but he invited me to join him in a study of uh, whether teaching about the ethics of eating meat, uh, essentially what we've just been talking about, uh, would make any difference to uh, the behavior of students. And this had never been done. Um, in fact, the effect of philosophy on behavior had never been done in um, what you could would consider to be like in the wild rather than in the, in the laboratory, right? It had never been done in a real world setting with a controlled study. And Eric's uh, classes at the University of California at Riverside uh, which were large classes, sort of beginning beginning philosophy classes, um, gave him the opportunity to do a controlled study in which um, the, the students sort of enrolled in small discussion groups, um, I guess, you know, fairly randomly. And then half of those discussion groups were chosen to have a session on uh, the ethics of eating meat. And the other half were chosen to have a session on the ethics of giving to charities, helping people in extreme poverty. Uh, uh, but the the the, po the poverty one was just a control group, really. We didn't look at their behaviour, but we had the opportunity to look at the behaviour of the students uh, 
in the meat ethics groups because uh, on the campus there, most of the students uh, get their lunch from the uh, a particular campus cafeteria and they do it by presenting their ID card. Um, so the cafeteria has a record of which students have bought which meals. And uh, we were able to get ethics committee approval to have access to that those records, you know, with so so we could identify the students who'd been in the meat groups, um, uh, or, and the other students who'd been in the poverty groups, and we could see whether they whether they bought more meals containing meat uh, after the class than they did before, and with the as you'd expect with the students in the charity group, there was no change in their consumption of meals with meat. In the group who did the discussion on uh, the ethics of eating meat, there was a statistically significant drop. Uh, it's not to say that you know all of them or half of them abandoned eating meat or anything like that, but we did get a drop in the percentage of meat meals that we didn't get in the other group. And because the numbers were quite large, um, as I say, this was uh, I think statistically very convincing. And it is, as far as we know, the first time that any such properly controlled study has shown that philosophy can have an effect on the behavior of students taking a, a class. This ties in really nicely, actually, to a question uh, I wanted to ask, which is, uh, so what should we do now if we uh, have listened to you and have been convinced that uh, animal suffering is something we should take seriously and we want to change our diets or we want to change our consumption behavior more generally, what should we then go on to do? Because um, I know within a lot of like vegetarian and, and, and vegan circles as well, this is a, a very difficult question where some people say, oh, it's great if you give up meat, but if you then go on to just eat a lot more cheese, you're not actually doing much more better. Um, from that kind of like consequentialist view, um, how should we approach vegetarianism? Is it like an all or nothing thing or um, uh, is it like an incremental uh, pathway we should choose? Is there any like tips you might give to listeners to to lead a more animal ethical life? Well, given my underlying ethics, which is utilitarian, so I focus on the consequences of our actions, uh, any reduction in supporting uh, factory farming in particular, which is the way the great majority of animal products are produced and also uh, inflicts much more suffering on animals than more traditional forms of farming. Um, any reduction in that is is welcome and positive. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's an all or nothing thing. I, I certainly would not say, look, unless you become completely vegan, uh, you might as well just go on eating what you're eating now. Um, from my point of view, that would be an absurd thing to say. Uh, I think rather that um, the further you go, the better generally. Um, but I, you know, I don't think it really matters very much if you're not completely strict. You know, I, if if you don't read labels very carefully and there's a bit of skim milk powder added to some product that you've bought, um, it's 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 not going to make a big effect. You know, you know, it's it's much more significant the the major purchases that you make where your your money supports the industry's profitability, but minor things don't. Um, so that's one way. Also, you know, some people talk about there's a thing in philosophers called the Paris exception. So let's say you're you're a vegan, but you're in Paris and somebody invites you to one of the great Michelin three hat restaurants, but it doesn't have any vegan uh, main courses. Um, uh, should you turn this down and say no? I'm, you know, thanks for the invitation, but I, I'm not going because I'm a vegan. You know, if if 
you would like to go, if this would be an important thing, a memorable occasion for you, I don't think the fact that you uh, have make this exception, um, you know, is is a, a really awful thing to do. It's you, you're just saying, you know, well, this is a case where for me there's a big positive value, um, uh, whereas you know, in my everyday life there isn't that huge positive value, and so um, I don't think it makes that kind of difference. Let's change gears then and talk about COVID. Um, first question, what is the case for human challenge trials and why are they being conducted more widely given that case? Uh, okay, so first we better explain what a human challenge trial is. As uh, most people will know, the standard trials for vaccines is to administer um, the vaccine and a placebo to uh, a large group of people, uh, sort of randomizing who gets the vaccine and who gets the placebo, and then wait to see uh, how many of them come down with the disease that you're trying to vaccinate against. Now, um, if not, you know, if it's not the case that everybody gets this disease anyway, you're going to have to wait a long time for enough people in your sample to get the disease to know whether the vaccine is protecting them or not. Uh, and that can, take, that can take several months. The alternative is to have a group of volunteers who are prepared to actually be infected with the disease. So you take the volunteers, um, again, you randomly vaccinate uh, half of them and, and give a placebo to the other half. And then you infect them all with the disease uh, quite deliberately. Uh, and then you will be able to see very quickly uh, whether the vaccine is protecting people or not. So you'll get the vaccine earlier. Um, and of course, you know, with, the, with the, the daily death toll from COVID, uh, every day that you get the vaccine sooner is going to save uh, thousands of lives uh, worldwide if you can get the vaccine and distribute it. So that seems a really good thing to do. Uh, and some people might say, yes, but who would volunteer to get infected with, with COVID, um, especially given that there's a 50% chance or anyway, significant chance that you won't have got the vaccine. Um, but the answer to that is um, at least 37,000 people, because last time I looked at the website of One Day Sooner, which is the organization encouraging people to do this, uh, that was how many volunteers they had. So so it's not a problem of not getting volunteers. Uh, what is the problem? Well, there has certainly been some ethical reluctance to do this. Um, I'm not really sure why, because I don't think they're very good at ethical arguments against it, provided you have um, volunteers who obviously are, have to be uh, adults, have to be 18, uh, um, and generally should be uh, young and healthy so that the risk of uh, dying from the disease or becoming very seriously ill uh, are quite small. Uh, so it does now seem that there are going to be some human challenge trials. Um, I think in January, the uh, Oxford lab, the Jenner lab that is doing this is um, planning for human challenge trials. Uh, but I do think if they'd been prepared for earlier, we um, probably would have got a vaccine earlier than we're going to get it. One of the... Um big ethical questions that I think a lot of people have been talking about because of COVID has been this trade-off between um, 
trying to protect uh, people's lives and, and health and the direct, um, very emotionally salient threat that COVID poses. But then on the other hand, um, this more indirect effect on well-being and the economy, which is also tied to a lot of unemployment and uh, like real life consequences from there as well. And I think a lot of people have kind of been struggling with with making this trade-off. And we'd be really interested to hear what your perspective is on this, whether it is the case, as some people have been saying, that the cure can be worse than the disease or um, that policymakers have a tendency to um, bias towards um, these more emotionally salient topics and what you're kind of thinking is about how we can trade off uh, different types of, of welfare. Right. This is a very difficult question. Um, and it's not a question on which I'm really able to give you, uh, unfortunately, a clear answer one way or the other, because uh, I don't think the, the facts are fully clear. Um, and it really would take a lot of research to lay down the facts in a clear and uh, reasonably objective way. But what I am, uh, what I have been saying in a couple of uh, short articles about this, is that we ought to be thinking about this, and we ought to be having more discussions uh, of what the costs and benefits are, and how to value them. And this is an activity in which we need both philosophers to discuss some of the value questions, and uh, social scientists, researchers to look at, as far as they can, what some of the costs and benefits are. So one of the uh, value questions, for example, is um, there have been some studies which count lives lost. Um, so the, obviously, if you don't have lockdowns, you're going to lose more lives from COVID-19. But um, with the lockdowns, they seem to have stopped people going for some routine medical procedures like various forms of cancer screening. And uh, there's an argument that therefore more people will die of cancer um, at some time over the next decade. Uh, and uh, that's just one example. There may be various other ways in which uh, the lockdown is leading people to have poorer health, but not, you know, not COVID-19 health. Now, uh, some of the, those studies uh, simply talk about lives saved. Uh, but um, other people say, isn't it relevant that COVID mostly kills people who are 70 plus um, and that therefore uh, the number of years of life lost is less than diseases that kill people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s? Uh, and some people resist that and say, no, we should count all lives the same. Uh, I'm on the side of those who think we should count years of life lost. I think it's clear to me that it's a greater tragedy if somebody dies at 30 or 40 than if they die at my age, for example. I'm in my 70s now. Um, and, and I think it's a greater tragedy if someone in their 70s dies than if someone in their 90s dies. Um, so I certainly think we should take account of years of life lost. Uh, but then other things are more difficult to try to get some sort of common currency to compare. Um, depression, for example. Uh, there's some suggestions that the lockdown is causing uh, more mental health issues, including depression. Uh, it's certainly causing unemployment, and unemployment has been a factor uh, in mental health. I think that's fairly well established. So we need that unit of currency. Um, health economists have used something called a quality-adjusted life year, which has enabled them to compare 
losses in quality of life, you know, they're thinking of things like, suppose that you were bedridden, you couldn't get out of bed, you were quadriplegic or something like that. Um, how would you value a year of life as a quadriplegic compared with a year of life in normal health? And, and the quality adjusted life year is a unit that is supposed to enable you to do that. So we can try applying that to comparisons of, you know, what's the cost in terms of mental health and how does that compare with years of life lost? Um, I think we should be doing more of that. This is my main point. We should be having more of a debate of this rather than political leaders saying, no, we've got to go into lockdown. Um, we've got to save lives. Uh, I think there, that is kind of basically what you hinted at, that there's a sort of emotional appeal to saying, you know, here's somebody who died of COVID. You, the prime minister, could have prevented that by a lockdown, but you didn't. So, you know, that's a terrible decision you made. Um, whereas we don't see the people who've died of not getting a cancer screening test um, or whatever the other things are, or the people, maybe, maybe there's some who committed suicide because they got so depressed. Um, we don't see those cases or they're not attributable in the same way to the problems. And so they're, they're less salient to us. It's a it's a really interesting and, and difficult topic. I remember, so I studied economics and one of the things that really resonated with me like back in March and April were these like new models that economists were uh, like producing to help inform policymakers. And they had this like this pandemic possibility frontier where on the x-axis they kind of had um, percentage of population alive. And then on the y-axis they had um, GDP per capita of those alive. And they kind of drew a curve of like what was possible theoretically. But then what point to choose on that possibility frontier like they wanted nothing to do with and that is like up to the policymaker then but you kind of really don't have a framework to to answer these questions um it seems like a really exciting area to to do more research on as you as you said exactly it needs that interdisciplinary group of people in uh, economics and philosophy and social sciences to to discuss that Let's abruptly change topics again then um so fairly late on in your philosophical career you switched to become a moral realist. That is, you came to believe that there are objective moral standards or facts or properties. Um, I think just asking why is a silly question. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask this. I take it you're influenced, at least in part, by um, reading Parfit and rereading Sidgwick as well. Um, I want to ask about Parfit. And I'm curious to know, was there some particular insight that you came across that kind of precipitated that change of mind in, in Parfit? I think there was, actually, um, which suggests that you've asked a, an astute question. Um, so behind my not being a moral realist uh, or objectivist uh, uh, beforehand, there was a Humean view about reason. Uh, David Hume famously said, uh, reason is a slave of the passions. Um, and essentially had this instrumentalist view of reason, which many economists still assume that, uh, you know, we have ends which are non-rational and then um, reason just shows us how to get to those ends. And Parfit challenged that with his example of the person with Future Tuesday indifference. So the, the person with Future Tuesday indifference is a person who, just like you and me, um, doesn't like to suffer um, pain, um, and in particular doesn't like to suffer extreme pain. So given a choice between having a headache on a mild headache on Wednesday and being tortured on Thursday, 
this person will immediately say, I'll have the mild headache on Wednesday, of course. I don't want to be tortured on Thursday. But this person is different from you and me in that he has this strange indifference to what happens to him on Tuesday. So um, if you ask him on Monday, would you rather have a mild headache today or be tortured on Tuesday? Um, he's going to say, well, I don't care what happens to me on Tuesdays um, and I don't would prefer not to have a headache. So thank you. I'll I won't have the headache today. And then, of course, he gets uh, tortured on Tuesday. Now, actually, I slightly misstated his preference. He said, I don't care what happens to me on future Tuesdays. And remember, we were having the conversation on Monday. So now Tuesday comes around. It's no longer a future Tuesday. It's a present Tuesday. And we start torturing him. And he hates it, um, just as you know he would hate it on any other day. But Parfit's point about this example was that if this person has these preferences, um, which include indifference to what happens to him on future Tuesdays. Um, and there's nothing you can say about the rationality or irrationality of those sort of brute preferences, the desires. The reason is just the slave of them. Um, then you can't say that this person's irrational. But I think it's evident that this person is irrational. Um, and it's you know, made me think that, well, rationality isn't just what Hume said. Uh, there are some things that you have to accept. And in, and the future Tuesday indifference in is an irrationality that's not that unlike the irrationality of saying, um, oh, I've got a mild toothache now, um, and if I don't make an appointment with my dentist soon, it's going to get much worse, but I don't like going to the dentist, so I mm, won't make the appointment. So, you know, we're, we're more familiar with discounting the future in that way, which I think is irrational. And then there's the question of whether... We can say that ignoring the interests of others is irrational, which is a much more controversial question. Uh, but that was what really got me thinking that maybe the basis for my uh, rejection of moral objectivism or moral realism wasn't as strong as I'd imagined. One um, other philosophy question uh, we have, we got from the EA forum from uh, Michael St. Jules, who asks, uh, what are your thoughts on negative utilitarianism? And what about egalitarianism as a form of aggregation uh, other than straight addition? If you could maybe briefly speak to those. Yeah, so you know, negative utilitarianism is the view that uh, suffering is bad, but um, pleasure is not good, or the, you know, more pleasure is not good. So, uh, in fact, in the way we've been talking, say, about animals, I, I did talk about suffering. I occasionally mentioned that it was nice if their lives would be good. But um, certainly I focus much more on reducing the suffering of animals and, for that matter, people too when I talk about people in extreme poverty, for example. So I do think that generally suffering is more important than happiness and pleasure. But negative utilitarianism says that the happiness and pleasure doesn't count at all. And that seems to me wrong because I would be prepared to trade off some mild degree of suffering in order to get some significant pleasures. Uh, and I think most people would be like that. Um, so that's why I don't really accept negative utilitarianism. Um, the question about, you know, why don't we focus on egalitarianism rather than maximizing well-being. Uh, I don't, I have to say, I don't see egalitarianism as an, a value in itself. And the sort of case why I don't see it as a value in itself is you imagine a world in which uh, there are some people who are suffering greatly 
and there are some people who are living very good lives. So there's a very unequal world. Um, and you could make the people who are living very good lives suffer just as much as all the people who are suffering. So then everybody would be suffering the same amount and the world would be very equal. Well, I think there's obviously not a better world. And I don't even think that somehow the fact that everybody's equal is a value which is outweighed by the reduction in happiness of the people who are well off. Um, I just, just don't see that we've uh, achieved anything by making it equal. That's not to say that um, I don't favour broadly egalitarian economic policies, for example. So, you know, t taxing people who are wealthy in order to provide social benefits for those who are poor, because I think that there is, um, you know, essentially the diminishing marginal utility of more resources to those who are well off means that you end up with a greater total of welfare when you tax people who are wealthy and provide significant benefits to those who are worse off. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sort of a, a pragmatic egalitarian in terms of maximizing total well-being, but not because I think egalitarianism is a separate ideal with intrinsic value of its own. It's fair to say that you haven't shied away from controversial ideas over your career. And maybe that has some cost, right? To the extent that it upsets some people, makes some people uncomfortable, or even just distracts from issues that uh, you might think are less divisive, but actually more important. So in general, what do you take to be the value of controversial ideas? And can you also tell us about the Journal of Controversial Ideas? Okay. So partly I think it's, it's the role of philosophers to be prepared to put ideas out into public discussion, um, you know, whether they're going to be controversial or not. Um, I don't think I've ever put out ideas for the sake of provoking or stirring. Um, I've only put out ideas that seem to me both to be defensible and to have some potential benefit. So the ideas that I suppose I'm most controversial for having put out, and certainly I've had the most opposition and protests uh, about, is uh, my advocacy of allowing parents to end the lives of their severely disabled uh, infants if they, in consultation with their doctors, judge that to be the best thing for for their family as a whole and for including the interests of the infant. I started discussing that together with my uh, colleague back in, in, in Australia, Helga Kuzer, because we'd set up a bioethics centre at Monash University and we were consulted by uh, the director of a major neonatal intensive care unit about dilemmas that he faced with severely disabled infants where uh, he and the parents had decided that the best thing was that the infants should not live, but they um, had and brought about this desirable, as they thought, um, outcome, essentially by not treating the infants. And that meant a much more long drawn out death for the infant. Um, no less certain really, but, but uh, much more suffering. And that seemed to us quite wrong. And we thought, well, if you're going to do this, if you think this is right, and we were persuaded that in some situations that was the right thing to do. The infant's prospects were, were so bad that that was better that the infant didn't live. Um, then we thought that it's better to do it actively, humanely, with a lethal injection rather than taking weeks or even months for the, for the infant to die. <clears throat> so we wrote about that and... Um, 
at the time, actually, you know, at first it didn't provoke such controversy. I think it has provoked more controversy more recently um, because of the disability rights movement, which in many ways I support. I think obviously it's wrong to discriminate against people and because they have a disability in, in employment or housing or something like that where the disability is not relevant to their ability to, to do the job. But I do think that the situation with newborn infants who can't express a view about whether their life is going to be worth living or not um, is a different one. So that's uh, that's part of the answer to your question. Then you also asked about the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which um, I've recently founded together with Francesca Minerva and uh, Jeff McMahon. And we are receiving submissions now. If any of your listeners have controversial ideas, um, you can find the website, Journal of Controversial Ideas, and you can submit a paper. And one of the things that we've done is to allow authors to submit uh, write under a pseudonym. And we've done this because we fear that the climate of openness to controversial ideas uh, has narrowed in terms of the range of ideas that people are prepared to consider. There have been a number of incidents where uh, academics, and particularly junior academics who are not in tenured positions, have uh, been pretty viciously attacked. Uh, papers have been withdrawn. Um, uh, jobs that they had actually uh, uh, been offered and accepted have been uh, withdrawn. Uh, and obviously, this must intimidate um, particularly younger academics from expressing controversial ideas that might be uh, lead to this kind of reaction. And, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in freedom of expression. I think uh, John Stuart Mill's greatest work is... Um, is on liberty, uh, in which he defends freedom of expression and explicitly defends it against the fact that it might cause offence to some people. Uh, and I think he gives important arguments as to why uh, it's best to have openness and be able to discuss a whole range of, of controversial ideas. And there's a nice link to what you mentioned earlier about Bentham's unpublished um, notes about women's suffrage, I guess. Yes, actually, Bentham had a lot of unpublished notes. And in interestingly, women's suffrage is not the only one. He also wrote very openly um, against the criminalization of homosexual acts um, uh, and said, you know, there's there's no reason why a, a person should be ruined because of their sexual, what we would call their sexual orientation. Um, he didn't publish that either. It's only been published in the last couple of years. We're moving close to the one hour mark. So we'll just move on to our closing questions. So the first question we ask all our guests is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? I know we've already talked about moral realism, but if you could maybe give another example. Well, if we're talking about recently, I think the moral realism is uh, really part of that. I guess the other aspect of that is uh, I was a preference utilitarian. That is, I thought what we ought to maximize is the satisfaction of preferences, um, more or less together with becoming a moral realist. and. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I think Finn mentioned this was not just influenced by Parfit, but also by a rereading of Sidgwick. Um, I became a hedonistic utilitarian, so wanting to maximize desirable states of consciousness, as Sidgwick called it. Uh, and that's connected with the switch to moral realism because it's a bit complicated, but previously my preference utilitarianism had come from uh, Hare's universal prescriptivism, from the idea that to use moral language, we ought to universalize our own desires. And that led to uh, everybody's desires getting into a, uh, being taken into account. And that led to 
satisfying preferences as being the right thing to do. And the last question is, what are three books or articles or other pieces of media that have had a large influence on you and that you would recommend to listeners who want to find out more about what we talked about? Oh, well, I think we've mentioned some of them. Um, I've already mentioned Derek Parfit's work, and I think all of Derek Parfit's work is is terrific. Um, the book that I was referring to was um, On What Matters, which is now a, was then a two volume, two large volumes, now three large volumes. Um, but that's an excellent work. His earlier Reasons and Persons is obviously a great work as well. I also mentioned uh, Henry Sidgwick and uh, the Methods of Ethics, uh, Parfit described as the, the work that contains more truths about ethics than any other work. Um, uh, and I think that that's certainly a work that uh, people should read. For a third one, um, well, let me go a little bit outside philosophy and say, um, I recommend Larissa McFarquhar's book, Strangers Drowning, which is about people who live, if you like, uh, in an extremely ethical way, in a whole lot of different ways. Some of them are related to things that I uh, talk about with how we should relate to people in extreme poverty um, and treatment of animals, but others are quite different. But it's a really interesting uh, and very readable study of people who are living ethically. And if uh, people want to find out more about your work, where's the best place to do that? Uh, I do have a website, petersinger.info, uh, and you can find more there. I'd also like to mention that I wrote a book called The Life You Can Save about global poverty, and an organization sort of spun off that, which I played a role in founding, but I'm not hands-on. It's called uh, The Life You Can Save, and if you go to thelifeyoucansave.org, you can download a free ebook or audiobook of um, the uh, recently updated 2019 edition of the life you can save. Uh, on the questions that we talked about with regard to animals, uh, obviously you mentioned animal liberation, but I would like to put in a plug for my most recent book, uh, Why Vegan, which came out in the uh, Penguin Great Ideas series just last month in the UK and will come out this month in October in the US. Uh, and it's a very short selection of things that I've written on that topic. Peter Singer, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. That was Peter Singer on speciesism, moral realism and controversial ideas. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Peter. There you'll find links to all the books and articles mentioned and to more of Peter's own work, including Why Vegan. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And if you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. And you can send suggestions, questions, love letters, hate mail, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.